you can get the first slide up. All right, take a look at that guy. I know what you're thinking. Either that guy must really know what he's doing, or he's a total idiot. Have you ever felt like that guy? In over your head, or at least over your waist? Cold, wet, tired, hungry, stuck? Confused about how you got into this mess? Well, if you're like me, I think you probably relate to the way that he feels right now. In fact, you might feel that way pretty much every day or a lot of the time. Well, I'd like to tell you that that guy's my brother Matt, but actually it's me. (laughs) My brother Matt and I had planned the sibling trip of a decade. Ten years ago, I flew out to California where he was living at the time. We spent one day snow skiing, four days doing a snow trek, and then we went the next day to Death Valley, climbed up a canyon, and rappelled down another one. Well, at this point in the trip, I can tell you what I was thinking. I was thinking, what were we thinking? The rangers had warned us that there was a lot of fresh powder, which meant slow travel and possibly an avalanche. Yet Matt and I had been planning this four-day snow trek for months, and I had flown all the way to California. No, there was no stopping us. The first day, I spent most of my time climbing out of holes, like that one. Every step with my snowshoes meant sinking at least a foot, if not more, into that fresh powder. We had only made it a few miles, far less than planned, when the setting sun convinced us to make camp in a saddle between two snowy peaks by a dam at the foot of a frozen lake. Although we were exhausted, neither of us slept very well that night. Of course, that may have had something to do with the fact that we hadn't brought a tent. Why was that again? Oh, that's right, to make our packs lighter. Or it may have been due to the fact that we set up camp in a wind tunnel, or because it started snowing on us that night. Matt and I named this camp Windy Camp. Well, the second night was a little different. That second day, we were better adjusted. The snow was more compacted, and we didn't have to climb as much. And the second night, we enjoyed the luxury of a five-star shelter here. And it, it wasn't really all that warm, but it did keep the wind and the snow off of us. But on the third day, something incredible happened. We reached our goal the turnaround. It was sunny, and the air was calm, which made it feel a little warmer. Standing on top of a frozen, snow-covered lake, we turned around and around, taking in the incredible panorama and aware of what it had cost us to get there. We hadn't seen another person or even another living thing other than the trees for three days. In complete isolation, this pristine treasure was all ours. And believe me, it was way more amazing than you could ever imagine from that picture. Although it took me months to regain the feeling in all of my toes, my perspective on the entire trip was changed by what we saw on that third day. 
It's not that the past had actually changed, but in a very real sense, it was as if it had. And I think that as we turn to Luke chapter 24, um, where Jesus meets two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, we see something similar going on there. So you can follow along in, uh, on your phone, or there'll be slides where you can read the text, or if you actually have a print Bible with you, you can use that too. So Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that very day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and debating these things, Jesus himself approached and began to accompany him, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, what are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, they replied, a man who with his powerful deeds and words proved to be a prophet before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Not only this, but it is now the third day since these things happened. Furthermore, some women of our group amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and said they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So he said to them, you foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself and all the scriptures. So they approached the village where they were going, but he acted as though he wanted to go farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's getting toward evening and the day is almost done. So he went in to stay with them. When he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. At this point, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Then he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together and saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. You see, when Jesus meets his followers on the road to, Demaeus, uh, to Emmaus, one named Cleopas and the other one we don't know, they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And they have good reason to be confused about what is going on. Just think about where they've been over the past few days, weeks, months, or even years, depending on when they joined Jesus' following Perhaps they were up in Galilee when Jesus was going around and preaching, saying that the kingdom of God had come. Maybe they had even been with John the Baptist when he was preaching a baptism of repentance, of release 
from sins. Maybe they had seen Jesus heal a blind man or, um, or raise someone from the dead. They were probably with Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem like a king. They had probably seen the rising antagonism between Jesus and the Pharisees, turning over tables in the temple, arguing with them, telling nasty stories that are obviously about them to their faces. And they'd even seen Jesus arrested and crucified and publicly humiliated. Their Savior's dead. He's gone. What are they supposed to do? And yet this morning, this very morning, this story takes place. The women had gone to the tomb. His body's not there. What happened to him? Did somebody steal it? There was an angel, but they're the only ones who saw the angel. The men went. They didn't see that. They have reason to be confused about what's going on. And even if Jesus has risen from the dead, what in the world does that mean? But for another reason, God's people have reason to be confused right now. You see, from the very beginning up to this point in the history of Israel, it's been really kind of a sad, bad story, punctuated by moments of greatness. God creates the world, and very quickly, that glory is lost. God promises to Abraham and his sons and his grandchildren that he's going to do all of these things for them, make them into a great nation, give them the land. And yet, does Israel really ever get that or have it for very long? There's a wonderful moment when God leads his people out of Egypt under the hand of Moses, but no sooner do they have the law than they break it. They have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, they enter the land and they conquer many of the peoples living there, but they don't actually ever kick everybody out. King David rises over Israel, a man after God's own heart, but he too turns against God. The kingdom disintegrates. And for the centuries coming up to the time that Jesus appeared on the earth, Israel has been living under oppression. When is their God going to do what he said he was going to do? They're confused. But Jesus joins these two followers where they are. It's very interesting that Jesus decides to conceal his identity from them, at least when he first appears to them. He doesn't tell them who he is or that he's risen from the dead. He doesn't explain the events. He asks them, what are they talking about? They insult him. They call him stupid. Are you really the only guy who doesn't know what's going on? Haven't you been reading your iPhone? They have the story basically right. They know the facts. They know that Jesus was a prophet in deed and word before God and all the people. They know that the high priests and rulers had handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified. But knowing the facts is not the same as understanding them. At the same time, they admit that they're kind of confused. They say that they hope They had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. They're not really sure whether that's going to happen or how it's going to happen now. Jesus has been dead for a few days. There are these divergent accounts about what had happened that morning. And at this point, Jesus brings them further, first by rebuking them. He opens up the scriptures to them, explaining to them all the things in there about him. Yet, At this time, if someone had read the entire Old Testament, 
It would be surprising to me if they came away understanding what Jesus rebukes them for not understanding. If you read the whole Old Testament, is it really about this, that it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter into his glory? That's not to say that that's not there, but it's a little surprising that Jesus rebukes them for for missing, apparently, the main message. In a way, Jesus is rewriting the Old Testament but he's not really changing the text. He's giving them a key to understand it, a key that they didn't have before. No one could have understood this before. And then, when they reach the town where they're going, Jesus takes his followers not just deeper into Scripture, which is the first step that is necessary for their understanding. He takes them deeper into fellowship. He breaks the bread together with them. And this is the sign by which they recognize him. It's actually not the reading of the Bible that opens their eyes. They had to do that first. It's the breaking of the bread, which is clearly reminiscent of Jesus' last supper with his disciples and of his feeding the multitudes. And when they see that, they recognize who he is. They understand, at least to a deeper extent, what has been going on. And today, as the church, we have both of these elements present in the life of our church and in our individual lives. Every week, we come together and we read the scriptures. God takes us deeper into understanding who he is and what he's done and possibly what he's doing now. We also regularly take the Lord's Supper together. We participate in communion together. And by that, we recognize who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But there are other ways in which this fellowship uh, is present in our church through ministries of mercy that bring into fellowship the rich and the poor, through global missions which bring into fellowship people from different cultures, people who speak different languages, or even our grace groups where we share our lives and our experiences together. If we take the Emmaus Road story and try to contextualize it within the broader narrative of Luke-Acts, it really is a shame that Acts is separated by John from Luke. Uh, I think we really miss something. You, you, you get something by reading Luke against Matthew and Mark, but you miss something by not reading it with Acts. This is a pivotal moment in the story of Luke-Acts, beginning with the resurrection, when the women go to the tomb that we talked about last week and they don't see what they expected to see. The entire story is changed radically and and unalterably after this point. And I think that Luke is very aware of this fact. First of all, he decides to write his work in two volumes, and this is coming at the very end of the first volume. And like any good storyteller, he knows that this is a natural pause, and so he, he works hard on it. He makes the story very entertaining. It's, it's much longer than the average story within the Gospels. Perhaps not within, if you compare it with Acts, but for certainly in the Gospels. And he, he really works on some elements of the story that I think are, make it speak to us. It get, gets us excited when we read this. It, it's a funny story. There's irony in this story. I mean, maybe it's kind of a twisted sort of humor, um, but it's there. You look in verse 18... And what does Cleopas say? He says, are you the only one who's visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in these days? How much more ironic could it be when he's talking to God himself who has just, just risen from the dead? 
But Jesus, he doesn't let on yet. You see the irony again when Jesus kind of like, this really reminds me of Joseph and the way that he treats his brothers when his brothers have come to buy food in Egypt. And Joseph's like, well, I love you guys, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull one over on you first. He kind of acts mean to them. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, you idiots. Are you really so slow in heart that you can't believe all the things that are written in the scriptures about the Messiah? Now we, the readers, we know. So it's funny. Them, they were probably like, who is this guy? I think the third moment where we see the humor is when Jesus pretends like he's going to go on to the next village. Can you imagine Jesus, like, tricking his disciples? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go on to the next village. No, 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 please stay with us. We want you to explain some more things to us. <laughs> they had already heard what he had to say, and they wanted more. The story is also intensely personal. Every time I read this story, and I think others have a similar reaction, I, I think, man, I wish I could have been there. What would it be like to hear Jesus explain the scriptures? Uh, that, would, that would be incredible. But on the, on the other hand, I think that it would also fill a hole that I feel like I have. Like, my life is confusing, just like the life of, of uh, Cleopas and the other disciple were really confused and mixed up, and they needed Jesus. Like, I, I need Jesus to come into my life and explain some things that I can't understand without him. But just as Jesus reveals himself, takes his followers deeper into his word, deeper into him, and deeper into fellowship, it's not over. In fact, just in the next story, Jesus appears to a fuller group of the disciples, and he tells them more, actually, than what he told Cleopas and the other disciple. He also says that it was written that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. He adds an episode that prepares for Acts, where the gospel is going to go to the nations. But if you go into Acts, things get even weirder and more confusing, and more layers get added to the story when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. The disciples couldn't have possibly imagined what that was going to be like when the flames were on their heads and they were speaking languages they'd never studied. And their number was growing magnificently every day. But it continues. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. Nobody predicted that. You find a man like Paul, the epitome of Judaism, saying, no, you don't have to be circumcised. It's incredible to think of how the story just develops and goes beyond where anyone could have imagined. And even in the end of Acts, in chapter 28, Paul is in Rome. He has reached the ends of the earth, and he is preaching the gospel without hindrance, even as he is under uh, house arrest. I think as Christians, when we think about broad spans of time or human history, we have to think about it, at least at one level, as linear. That is, history starts with God's creation and moves forward towards some end. We think of it as heaven. We think of it as Jesus coming back. When I read the end of Revelation, something wells up inside of me when I see that there is no more pain or tears or sin But in another way, when we think about the dark, confusing history that Israel has had up to the present, 
as well as the dark and confusing history from the time of Jesus to now, we see that history is also cyclical. People make the same mistakes that their parents make. Generations make the same mistakes that the generations before them make. But if you combine these two models, you find a kind of educational model whereby we are spiraling slowly in a particular direction. And just as Jesus meets his followers, he first asks them, what has happened? And on the first circuit, through trying to explain what's going on, that's where they are. But he takes them deeper, and they go farther into the scriptures, and they understand more. And a third time, he takes them into fellowship, and they go farther. And I think it's important for us to think about this spiral, both in terms of human history at the grandest extent, as well as in our own lives, as we're one chapter or one page in the human history. Life is weird and confusing. I don't think that I have to argue that. And let's go back to the, the picture where I'm in that hole. I think it's important for us to admit the previous slide. There we go. There I am. That was not very fun. Life is like that in a way. You're in a hole every time you take a step. Maybe you take a few steps, you're in another hole. And I think it's important for us to admit the holes in our life when we find ourselves deep in over our heads and ask the question, how in the world did we get here? To try to make sense of the question, how in the world did we get here? This really reminds me of when Andrew Brewer talked about hard questions that we should feel free to ask to God. And as we reflect on the scriptures, as we reflect on the past, hindsight sometimes helps us to understand what happened or why something happened the way that it did. We can, we can see purpose. But even as we try to construct purpose and meaning in our lives, I think we have to resign ourselves to the fact that such explanations are always tentative. You might feel differently or change your mind in the future about, about what had happened. You might learn something new that totally changes everything, just as these two disciples had their whole worldview blown by Jesus' encounter with them. At the same time, you may get to the end of your life, and you may never have an experience like the Emmaus Road. There may be some major puzzles of your life that you cannot explain. And I think that, that is where this image stops being useful, because life is not a vacation. This is what it's like to have, be in a hole on vacation. But real life, we have much worse holes to deal with. So let me tell you another story where there's something confusing in my past that I can't explain today. About this same time, um, I married my wife, Allison, and shortly after we got married, we graduated from college, and we felt like God was calling us to Bible translation. We joined Wycliffe Bible Translators, and we did some linguistics training. We moved to Sofia, Bulgaria, where we felt like God was leading us to work with the Roma Gypsies translating the Bible into their language, or to multiple dialects within the country. Never in my life have I been more sure that I was where God called me to be. And yet, we hadn't even been there for a year when it was abundantly clear that that was not where we were supposed to be. And we came back. I went through something of a very early midlife crisis trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to be doing. 
And I can look back in some ways, and hindsight helps me to see maybe what God was doing at that time in my life, but I can't really explain why God would call me and then call me back. And I think that it's important for me to be okay with the fact that I can't explain that. Maybe I will know someday, maybe I won't. But I think that Jesus calls us to continue to go deeper, to go deeper into the scriptures as they shed light on our own experiences, on what God has done for us in the past and is doing for us in the present. I think God calls us to go deeper into Jesus. It's only when Jesus pulls the shades off of the eyes of the disciples by breaking the bread and brings them into fellowship that they actually understand. The scriptures aren't enough for them. The facts about what have happened are not enough for them. They actually have to have Jesus open their eyes. And I think that Jesus also calls us to go deeper into fellowship, symbolized by the breaking of the bread. It's okay not to have all the answers, even as we ask Jesus to take us deeper. When you find yourself deep in over your head, don't give up, but keep going. God may not explain everything to you now. He may not explain everything to you ever. But ask Jesus to take you deeper. Now, in a minute, we're going to practice the Christian fellowship that we see at the end of this story as the Kaisers are going to come in a minute to lead us in communion. And think of this breaking of the bread. We normally talk about it as remembering, and that's important Jesus tells his disciples, remember me. But it's also a recognition. That's what it is in this story. The communion is recognizing who Jesus is. Ask God to reveal himself to you so that you can recognize him more than you have in the past. Also this morning, the Lesters are going to be in the back. If you feel like you need prayer for something particular, you can go back and, and pray with them.